Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? We are going to finish the book of Hebrews today and uh, even review its major context. It's supposed to be an applause. <laughs> it's just moaning. <laughs> so, yeah, if the sound keeps it up, I might just have everybody move close and I'll shout at you. Yeah. I'm going to be reading God's word to you out of the New King James Version, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22 to the end. The author says, and I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And... uh, My audience this morning only thinks that the word has come to an end, but your word endures forever. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful that it stands forever, that uh, it will be applicable forever. It will be good. It'll be always true. And uh, and Lord, it's for us to know it, to tremble before it, and uh, to heed its direction, and to cry out for grace, Lord, to live according to its instruction. And so we just ask for grace this morning as we conclude our study of the book, review. May it prove to be a blessing to us, Lord, and that the fruit of it, Lord, would bring bring you glory. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. Please look again with me at verse 23. I'm going to briefly comment on verse 23 to 25. And then I'm actually going to return to verse 22. And uh, from there, we'll launch into uh, sort of a review of what we've looked at. So if you would, look at verse 23. Interesting that we had to wait till the end of the letter to discover that Timothy was incarcerated. Thanks for holding that detail out till the end. But you all studied ahead, so you were all aware of that. And no doubt he was uh, arrested for the faith. Amen. We're going to assume that with our our sanctified imagination, all right? Uh, The original audience, of course, they were aware that Timothy was imprisoned for the faith, but they had to wait till the end of the letter to discover that he had been freed. And and the challenge is, I wish there was just more details about his imprisonment and all of that. We don't know very much. Uh, It is speculated, perhaps, that from 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 11 and 21, during Paul's imprisonment in Rome... He had written to Timothy uh, during his pastorate in Ephesus, and he was asking Timothy to come to him as soon as he could. Um, it's, it's, per, it's pure speculation, but it's possible that Timothy had uh, answered that request. He had come to Rome and then been arrested uh, for being there and then preaching the gospel. Uh, but it's also possible that Timothy was arrested in Ephesus. Uh, we know that things were a little crazy in Ephesus when Paul went, well, Every place was crazy uh, when Paul was, was there, and uh, even the church was sort of glad when he left Jerusalem uh, because he stirred up so much trouble with the Hellenistic Jews, uh, probably the same ones that stoned Stephen, probably the same ones that he had done synagogue with. Uh, but anyway, um, it's possible that he was arrested in Ephesus. It's also possible that uh, neither of those conjectures are true at all and that Timothy was arrested someplace else. We just don't know, and uh, so we'll have to take it up with the author of Hebrews uh, when we see him, uh, if that is even important to you. 
All we really know is what the text says. Timothy had been in prison. Timothy had been released. And there were plans for Timothy to join the author so that they together could visit these Hebrew Christians. But it's implied there that if Timothy didn't hurry, he would be left behind. So uh, I guess we'll also find out uh, whether or not Timothy joined the author of Hebrews where any of these people were. Uh, Verse 24 says, Greet all those who rule over you, and all the saints, those from Italy, greet you. Yeah, so real quick, the, the, this, this uh, encouragement to greet one another makes a distinction between leadership and laity. The laity here are called the saints. Uh, the leaders, as we've already discussed from verse 17, consist of pastors and elders, and the laity, or the saints, in general, are those in the fellowship who uh, do not hold an office in the church. Now, the distinction is based upon the roles within the church, similar to the roles in a family. Uh, There are varying degrees of authority based upon the roles, but there are no degrees of value or personhood. Do you understand? Uh, Not in the family, not in the church, all are one in Christ. There's degrees of authority, but no degrees in value or personhood. Lastly, verse 20, uh, the last sentence in verse 24, uh, I don't know how we can come to so many conclusions uh, as Bible interpreters with uh, a totality of five words, but there are a few different understandings of what it means that those from Italy greet you. Those from Italy greet you. It seems to imply a couple things. It can imply either the location of the author, the location of the audience, or neither. I'm sure you had an impression when you first heard it. Uh, My impression was that the author was in Italy when he wrote the letter, and the saints from the church in Italy were greeting those that the author was writing to, wherever they were, okay? But it's also possible that the author was somewhere outside of Italy with believers from Italy who were greeting the audience who was currently in Italy. And still others believe that we can only be certain of one thing, that the believers from Italy were with the author who was greeting his audience. I hope that no books were written over which interpretation is right. I'm sure that the original audience understood well, and that's probably all that matters, and so we're going to move on. Okay, verse 25 ends with, grace be with you all, amen. That concludes the book of Hebrews, so let's close in prayer. The final greeting of grace with you is actually another signature uh, of the Apostle Paul. Every letter of his in the New Testament is summed up with grace. Peter and John both end with peace. James ends with nothing. And Jude ends with a benediction. Okay, now, uh, again, this doesn't prove that Paul is the author. Um, I think it does, but... uh, It certainly proves, I believe, that he influenced the person who did, and that is a good thing. Amen? So now let's return to verse 22. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. The author's final exhortation is for his audience to heed his exhortation. Yeah. I exhort you to be exhorted. That's what that means. That's what he's saying. And then he says, because I have written a short letter to you. I wonder what a long letter would be to the author of Hebrews. <laughs> when we look at the other letters in the New Testament, this one is no slouch. Amen. It's quite a long letter, a very good one. Uh, perhaps it was in the author's heart to write 
many more things uh, to this audience, but he uh, refrained. And actually, when he was talking about Melchizedek, he said, I have many, many more things I want to say to you. But he said, your immature mind is just not prepared for it. Uh, So I guess that's another sermon we'll have to wait for in heaven. Uh, That'll be two for me that I want to hear the conclusion of. The one is Jesus on the road to Emmaus, when it says that he expounded from all of the law and the prophets concerning himself. And there's zero exposition. And I'm sure it was an amazing sermon. And then, of course, as he supped with them, he broke the bread and their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. And then there is all that the author of Hebrews uh, had to say uh, that I wish he had said, but did not. And um, so those things will become a revelation to us, I'm sure, the, the day that we're with Christ, when we will be known, or we will know, rather, even as we're known. All right, his exhortation. I want you to heed the exhortation. It consists of everything that has been written uh, up to this point in the letter, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 13, verse 19, uh, all that's taken us about two years to discuss together. And uh, I've enjoyed it, and it's actually quite daunting to just review it, and I think we should just start over. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, 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 I think there's a problem in our mind when we think of exhortation. We think that an exhortation is purely a kind of encouragement or a command to to abstain from something and to do the right thing. Uh, it's, uh, that's what we think of as an exhortation, but actually an exhortation can just come from information. And as we've gone through this book, you realize that most of it is theological information and probably a, an eighth of it is instruction in, in what we say the imperative form, a command, okay? And actually much of his exhortation is not imperative. It's just encouragement, okay? But most of the book of Hebrews is a book of theology. It's a book of information, okay? And information can be just as uh, filled with exhortation as a direct command. And uh, so I want to look at that again with you because I believe that it's encouraging. I believe that it's edifying. I believe it's humbling. And uh, I believe that it helps us refocus and uh, get our footing and then begin again wherever we've kind of misstepped, okay? So just to, maybe if I was to sum all of it up, the exhortation would be because of who Christ is and because of what he has done, we should trust him and live worthy of him. But then we could also say that that is the content or push of the entire New Testament. So in review, as an attempt to, I I hope, simplify the message of Hebrews, let's, let's grab the highlights of who Christ is which is by far the most daunting task, okay? And then what Christ has done, and then, of course, how we should respond to those things. So in chapter one, in in chapter one, just verses one through three, the author introduces Jesus to us as the very son of God, the final spokesman of God, the creator of all things created, the heir of all things created, the sustainer, of all things created. The revelation of God's glory, the perfect representation of God's nature, the purifier of man's sins, and the one who occupies the throne to the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's just how the author introduces him. He's not even warmed up yet when it comes to the person of Jesus. The author spends the next 10 chapters 
unpacking all of the things that he has introduced to us here. And he presents uh, in the the most in-depth and comprehensive, what we would call Christology, a Christology, a study of Jesus in all of the Bible. In verse four of chapter one, the author introduces the theme of the book to us, uh, that Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what he provides, he says, is so much better. So remember, these Hebrew Christians are a persecuted group. And because of their persecutions, they're tempted to go back into Judaism or Judaism, however you want to pronounce that, back into the Jewish faith. And he begins by saying, listen, Jesus is so much better than anything that you could go back to. So better than what? Well, just in the introduction, it's implied that he's better than all of the Old Testament prophets. And it's stated emphatically that he's superior to all the angels. So please understand something. As far as power and majesty and glory, as far as those things are concerned, the angels are second only to God. Only to God. And the author says that Jesus is so much better than the angels. Not slightly better. Not a whole lot better. He is infinitely better than the angels. Well, how can that be? Well, Jesus is better than the angels by means of deity. Deity. He's the God-man. Not half God and half man, a thing which is impossible in itself. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. Jesus cannot be half God because that would make deity less than it is and anything less than deity is just not God. It's not deity. And if he is not God, he is not so much better than the angels. But because of the fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity being coalesced in the man Jesus, he is infinitely greater than the angels. Paul declared to the Colossians, for in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Yeah. The word Godhead simply means deity. Paul told Timothy, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness God was manifested in the flesh, in the man Jesus, 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul and Peter both declare that Jesus is our great God and Savior, our great God and Savior. Now, liberal theologians, uh, before our real understanding of Greek grammar was was completely intact, uh, said, well, our great God is the Father and Jesus is the Savior. No, there's a Greek rule Uh, that has no exceptions. It's called the Granville Sharps rule of Greek grammar. It means that the great God and Savior have to be the same person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not an angel or some other majestic species. He's the eternal Son of God who infinitely transcends the angels in dignity, majesty, and power, which accounts for Jesus being the very object of angelic praise. He is the person they worship, verse 5 through 7 of chapter 1. And then in verse 8 through 14 of chapter 1, Jesus is declared to be the righteous, eternal, immutable king and creator of all things. And that's what his father says about him. God the Father talking about Jesus the Son. So really, the angels are not to be compared to Jesus. For how can what is created be compared to its creator? How can the worshiper be compared to the one that is worshiped. The eternal son of God should not be compared to his servants. In chapter three, the author moves on from Jesus's supremacy over heavenly creatures to that of earthly figures, people of great significance to the Jew. 
He begins by demonstrating that Jesus is worthy of more glory and honor than the prophet Moses. The prophet Moses. Now, this is actually risky territory for the author. It's risky for him to say this to a Jew because of how venerated Moses is. Okay? Moses was venerated. He was remembered as being the deliverer from Egypt, delivering the people from Egypt, leading her through the Red Sea safely, and then through the wilderness, spending the next 40 years interceding for them, who ultimately gave uh, them God's law. He's venerated as the lawgiver, the prophet, the meekest man who's ever lived. But Jesus is the faithful son of God in his father's house, that is, the family of God, is worthy of more honor than Moses, who the author of Hebrews says was a mere servant in the house of God. A son is always worthy of more honor than a servant, especially when that son is faithful. So Jesus is greater than the greatest prophet. In chapter four, it's demonstrated that Jesus was better than Joshua, who led Israel over the Jordan, conquered the land of promise, and then delivered the land to them for their rest. And then the text says, because of the unbelief and disobedience perpetuated from the time that they were in the wilderness, and then into their time in the land, it says they did not experience God's rest. But he says, but those who have trusted in Christ have indeed entered into this rest that Joshua could never provide. So Jesus is greater than Joshua. In chapter 5 through 10, the author devotes his time to show that Jesus is the perfect high priest, superior to all of the high priests in Israel's history, seeing that Christ was called from the superior priestly order of Melchizedek, Uh, If you didn't listen to any of that and you've never read it or heard the word Melchizedek, uh, you can listen to the sermons, you can read those chapters. He's superior to all of the other priests, the high priests, because Jesus was sinless, his life endless, his sacrifice perfect, his redemption eternal, his covenant everlasting, his hope enduring, his promises permanent, and his his inheritance is glorious. All things mentioned through the book, and without question, he's better than all of the high priests of Israel who have ever lived. So what is the exhortation that would emerge from these facts about Jesus? What's the exhortation? Well, the author's intent by revealing the true identity of Jesus is to inform the mind so that the heart will bow in adoration and fear. That's the intent, okay? Because when you get Jesus right, you get everything right, and only then. An author uh, from the middle of the last century once said of his message in a book, I'd like you to listen carefully because the things that dead people say are far more important. That his message, that it was called forth by a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for Yet one so low, so ignoble, and so utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. 
Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the then 20th century. This loss of the concept of majesty has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the churches are more prosperous than at any time within the past several hundred years. But the alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external and our losses wholly internal. And since it is the quality of our religion that is affected by internal conditions, it may be that our supposed gains are but losses spread over a wider field. The only way to recoup our spiritual losses is to go back to the cause of them and make such corrections as the truth warrants. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A discovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself and the most portentous, I don't know what that word, how to say it, I know what it means, ominous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. It is my opinion that the Christian conception of God, current in these middle years of the 20th century, is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. All the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together, and at once would be nothing compared with the overwhelming problem of God, that he is what he is like and what we as moral beings must do about him. If you have a faulty view of Christ, if it is beneath him, if it is unworthy of him, it will bear fruit in your life, it will. The author of Hebrews understood well that only those who have a great God have a great religion. Paul said that Christ is our great God and Savior, our great God and Savior. If our view of him is diminished and unworthy of him, our faith and conduct will be diminished and unworthy of him. If in our hearts he is less than he really is, our worship will always be less than he deserves. But if by revelation of God's spirit, Christ is apprehended for who he is, the heart will 
bow before him and our lives will reflect his character. We do not adhere, you guys, to a philosophy. We adhere to the God-man, Jesus Christ. Our understanding of him must come before our understanding of all of the secondary doctrines from him. We must understand Christ as the Bible reveals him. So the author does that. He reveals Christ as he really is so that we will humble ourselves and so that we'll heed his exhortation, the word of Christ. Christ is just no puny God that he can be ignored for all will stand before him. All will give an account for what they've done in this life. Peter says that Jesus will come and he will judge the living and the dead. And so everyone's destiny depends on what they do with Jesus Christ. What have you done with him? What have you done? The second thing is, what did Jesus do? The eternal son of God who created us and gave us life and breath. The author tells us that he assumed a human body, that his father prepared a body for him. Yeah. That he might be tempted as we are tempted in all things except without sin. That he might succeed where we have, as humans have failed. That he might suffer for our sins die in our place, rise in victory, ascend to his father, stand as our intercessor, return triumphantly and reign mightily. At his cross and in his resurrection, he secured for us the forgiveness of sins, the adoption as sons and daughters, eternal redemption, our eternal inheritance, and unlimited access to the throne of grace. For by one offering, the author says, by the offering of himself, he has forever perfected those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10, 14, a perfect righteousness before the Father. So that's who Jesus is. That's what he's done, basically. So how is it that we should respond? First things first, the author says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Hebrews chapter two, verse one. Now, this is actually the first exhortation uh, in the letter to the Hebrews. But it's important because of what it falls on the heels of. Yeah. It follows on the heels of all that the Father has declared about his Son in chapter 1. Chapter 1 ends, and then we have the first exhortation. They should have moved the chapter, the, the chapter 2, to about four more verses later. It's a tragedy. Because people read chapter by chapter, usually, I think, Maybe it's verse by verse these days. But then they stop, and then they, the next time they pick up in the book of Hebrews is an exhortation, and they've lost everything that's come before it. God the Father said this to Jesus. Your throne, O God. You caught that, right? This is God the Father speaking to the Son, Jesus. Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not Fail. Hebrews 1, 8 through 13. In verse 8, the father refers to Jesus as God. And then in verse 10, he calls Jesus Jehovah. When you go to the Old Testament passage that he's quoting from, it's Y-H-W-H. It's however you want to pronounce it, Jehovah 
or Yahweh. We know it's not Jehovah. There's just no J in Hebrew. Yahweh. Understanding that Yahweh is the covenant name of the God of Israel. Yeah. God the Father and the angels of heaven know Jesus the Son as Yahweh. And so should we. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. That's who he is. And if Jesus is Yahweh, the author says, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. It's because of who Christ is. It's because who the Father says he is, who the angels worship him as. We must give heed. We'll drift away. The heart is wayward. You know that. It's rebellious. So any unguarded moment will by default result in sin and sin. So letting down our guard is not an option. The author later on encourages us that we have to keep our focus. We have to keep our pace. Our fists have to always be up and our mind has to always be in the game, always. Too much is at stake to get distracted. And then as the author continues, he says we must constantly be on the lookout for unbelief, which he says is wicked. Do you hate that? Don't say it like that. Don't, don't call my doubt wickedness. No, that's what he calls it, wickedness. Because unbelief is offensive to God. It's offensive to him. Unbelief says that God is not trustworthy. How do you like it when people refer to you as untrustworthy? And you are untrustworthy, but God is not. There's nothing not to trust. It doubts the truth of God's word, his integrity, and his dependability. It's, it's uncertain of the only one that we can be absolutely certain of. That's unbelief. I think unbelief is probably the most irrational thing we can do. And then, because we're all made of the same stuff, and because we're all in the family of God together, the author says we must be constantly encouraging one another. Hebrews 3.14. We're a family. To make it more intimate, we're one body. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that every member of the body needs the other members. And we need to be encouraging one another. We cannot be self-consumed. We must be on the lookout for the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters. Because you know what Satan is trying to do. He's not all roar and no bite. He devours. He devours. And our culture is eager to destroy okay? the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then the exhortation of chapter 4 is for us to be diligent to enter the spiritual rest that Jesus provided for us. Hebrews 4, 11. Moses couldn't do it. Joshua couldn't do it. David didn't do it. But David looked forward to it. And it's only provided in Christ Jesus. The soul cannot be satisfied apart from him. The soul cannot find meaning or purpose or hope without him. It's impossible. It's impossible. No rest. After years of hopeless searching and self-destruction, Augustine of Hippo, Africa, after Christ apprehended him, after he was rescued and redeemed, he said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. He wrote that in hindsight of his life that was a train wreck until he came to Jesus. Only those who believe experience his rest, Hebrews 4, 3. And then upon the, the awareness of what Christ has done for the sinner, the author then exhorts them to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, with confidence, so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, Hebrews 4, 16. He's saying in that chapter that because of the blood of Christ, we can approach the unapproachable, the unapproachable. There no longer exists the peril of life as it did for Esther. When unannounced, she went into the throne room of the king. Okay, we get to go at all times because we have a daddy who welcomes us. 
through Christ Jesus. In chapter 5, the author says, let us be skilled in the word of righteousness that we might, he says, teach others and discern both good and evil. Do you guys agree that the times that we live in are evil and insane and chaotic? You need to discern. And then you need to be discerning enough that you can inform others. He says you must know the word of righteousness. It's chapter 5. The beginning of chapter 6, he says, let's leave behind the elementary principles of Christ and let's move on to maturity. Okay? The rest of the world is floundering without the word of Christ. We must, of all people, be discerning and teaching and loving, merciful. And then in chapter 6 through 10, the author would have us fully embrace the benefits of the new covenant that have been ratified in the blood of Christ and not be bogged down in the old covenant that he says does not profit, Hebrews 6 through 10. I don't know, honestly, how anything of the old covenant exists in the church today uh, after studying the book of Hebrews. Makes no sense to me. We are new covenant people. The old has been made obsolete, he says in chapter 8. And then in chapter 11, he encourages us with the memory of those who've gone before us, who live by faith. I think it took us six months to get through that chapter. And in chapter 12, he encourages us to lay aside everything that would keep us from running with endurance. And he says to look to Jesus, to endure suffering until we reap its benefits. That was, that's the best chapter in the whole Bible. Suffer well, suffer well until you enjoy its fruit. And then he says, and through it all receive grace that we might live acceptably to God. In chapter 13, uh, it's just a, a torrent of exhortation. He says, love one another, love strangers, love those who are in chains for Christ. Hold marriage in the highest regard. Be content. Remember those who have taught the word of God to you. He says, do not stray from the clear teaching of the word. He says, worship God instead by praising him, thanking him, and by doing good to others. And finally, he says, take heed to those who watch after your souls. Hebrews 13, 1 through 17, and he closes with, grace be with you all. Amen. Now, I was hoping to play a piece of audio for you from a, a long passed away pastor named Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. Uh, I guess we'll possibly play it for second service. I guess you could stick around for it. Uh, I thought it would be fitting to compliment the supremacy of Jesus. Maybe I'll play it another time for you. But um, anyway, that's, what's that? Well, then play the audio. Hold on real quick. Do we have, um, is the worship team going to do a song? Why don't you slowly mosey up here? The audio is seven minutes. You won't be disappointed. It's probably my favorite audio of all time. I've played a portion of it before, but um, I think it'll bless you. I probably shouldn't have told you it was seven minutes, but I guarantee you'll forget in the first couple seconds if they can swing it. Did you get, how much have you broken, by the way? Just thinking of all we'll have to pay for. Why don't I pray, and then uh, we'll play the audio. We'll close in some worship. Why don't you stand with me? Are you guys getting warm? Well, it's warmer up here, okay? I have an elevated position here. Do you guys want to do some worship first? You got it? If you don't, we can just skip it. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I, there are many important exhortations in the book of Hebrews that should not ever. But the one thing that stands above everything else in this letter, Lord Jesus, is your supremacy, majesty, deity. 
infinitude, eternality, your omniscience, your benevolence, Lord, all that you are. And Lord, I know that the Holy Spirit's intent is all of those realities would dawn upon us and that would humble us and cause us to tremble before you because you are no puny God. You're the God of heaven. So Lord, I pray that whatever deficiency in our vision of Christ exists in our hearts, I pray that you'd banish it with the truth and that you would draw us to you in awe and wonder and worship and devotion. And Lord, that the beauty of your character would then be reflected in our own. And Lord, I I pray for Naama. Lord, I pray that she'd come home tomorrow after she's got her fill of tea and spent quality time with her daddy, uh, just stalking and sharing, enjoying one another, and that this would all pass. And Lord, I pray that Aaron and Dama, that their hearts would be comforted in regard to the loss of their boy. And they give them strength. And you give them hope according to your word that uh, one day they will be reunited with him in your kingdom. So be with them and bless them. Protect Naama. Just restore her whole, Lord, to her family. And Lord, we just love you and we thank you for all of your goodness and your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.